to John 20, 1 to 18, if you would, please. We'll be uh, starting there in just a moment. I want, I want to just say before I, I jump in, uh, we'll pray in just a second. I want to say that um, what we're doing today, there's sort of this thought on Easter, this, this expectation that, that Easter's sermon and worship is going to be different. And, and it is, in a sense, different than what we normally do in that we don't, we don't talk about resurrection every Sunday. And that's a little different, but, but in one sense, I want you to know, if you're a guest with us, if you're new with us, that, that this is a lot like what we do each Sunday. And so, when we go into the Word of God today, it's going to be to study the Scriptures, to learn from them, and then apply that to our lives. And, and that's going to be today like we do any day, because we believe in the power of the Word of God itself to change lives. We believe... In the power of the Word of God to equip believers to live the Christian life. We believe that the Word of God can equip believers and change hearts. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It says that it's God-breathed and it's useful, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and then it says, for training in righteousness. That's what we're doing here as the people of God under the authority of the Scriptures, is we're being trained in righteousness. At the end of that passage in 2 Timothy 3, it says, that's for the purpose of the man of God being thoroughly equipped for good work. And so our presence here today in the Word of God equips us, trains us, to do good work in the world. So my hope and prayer for our, our gathering today, like any other Sunday, is that you would be equipped and trained to leave this place with the testimony of Jesus, the risen Jesus, in your hearts and in your lives, so that you will go and tell the gospel by what you do and what you say. Father in heaven, it is our prayer indeed that you would use what we do today to feed us. It is our prayer that, that we would be people who feed on a diet of your word, not just on Sundays, but all week long. Father, we want to have you touch hearts and shape minds. We ask that you would feed our souls with your truth so that we would leave this place changed. So that we as the people of God would leave this place as walking, as living testimonies to the truth that you are a risen Lord. Father, speak to us through your word today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If, uh, if your childhood was anything like mine, uh, then you probably remember endless hours, it seemed like endless hours, endless hours of boredom in the back seat of the car on family vacation. On those long road trips where it feels like you're just driving for eternity and you're staring out the window watching the clouds uh, go by. We had a, a couple of cross-country, actually almost four, cross-country moves 
for us as a family when I was a kid. And so I remember these long road trips, just watching the clouds go by, feeling like there's nothing to do. And so what do you do? This was before everybody had the world in their pocket on a phone. So what do you do? You make up games. You make up games for what to do on long road trips. And if you've ever been on a youth ministry trip or a long road trip, then you're probably familiar with the kinds of games that I'm talking about. How many of you played the game uh, States on Plates? That's what we kind of called it. If, if you look at whatever license plates you see, you try to come up with however many states you could. That was one in our car. Uh, as, as a family also, we, we did 100 bottles of Coke. I'm a preacher's kid. So we did 100 bottles of Coke. And, uh, and also in my family, uh, we were sort of word nerds. Uh, so we always did the alphabet game where you'd go from A to Z to see who was first to get through the alphabet. Uh, we also had, um, and, and we literally did this in the car occasionally, we also had uh, portable uh, Scrabble. We had travel Scrabble and Boggle. And so uh, that's a, an insight into my nerdy family's life. How many of you ever did what's called lateral thinking puzzles? If you've heard of lateral thinking puzzles, and you've probably been in youth ministry or, or helped chaperone trips, lateral thinking puzzles are, are a kind of game like that. And, and it's a bit of a different game. And what you do is you try to figure out what happened. You're presented with a particular scenario. You see the end results. And you're supposed to creatively come up with all of the circumstances that led to those results. And it's a little bit different than you normally think. I'll give you one couple, uh, a couple examples. One's real easy. The first one is this. There's a man who walks up to three items lying together in the middle of a field. Man walks up on three items lying together in the middle of a field, and they are a carrot, a pile of pebbles, and a pipe. A smoking pipe. Carrot, a pile of pebbles, and a smoking pipe. What happened? A melted snowman. That's what happened. Carrot, pile of pebbles, smoking pipe. I'll give you one that's a little bit harder. This is a classic example of a lateral thinking puzzle. Got to follow closely on this one. There's a man who lives in an apartment building. And every day in the morning, he rides the elevator from his 20th floor all the way to ground level. Morning on the way to work, 20th floor all the way to ground level. When he comes back from work, he rides up to the 10th floor, he gets off, and he climbs the last 10 flights of stairs to his apartment. He does it that same way every day. 20th floor all the way down, and then up 10, walks 10 when he gets back. Except when it's raining, some of you are already trying to talk this out with your neighbor. When it's raining or when somebody else is in the elevator. In which case, when he comes home, he goes all the way up to the top, to the 20th floor. The reason is, is that the man is very short. He can't reach the buttons past 10. And when it's raining, he's got his umbrella. Or when somebody else is in the elevator, they push the buttons and he goes all the way up. That's the explanation for the man who lives on uh, the 20th floor of his apartment building, who was short. One more lateral thinking puzzle. 
Friday night, a man dies, buried that same night. Sunday morning, some friends arrive at the tomb to discover that the body is gone. That's obviously the scenario presented to us in John 20 that we read earlier. We're not going to read through the entire thing again. We'll go through uh, a few verses at a time here. But that's the scenario presented to us in John 20. We sort of see the end results, and we don't know all of the details from just the passage in John. And, And in fact, if you want to have all of the details about the resurrection account, you have to put all four of those accounts together and piece the puzzle together. And and that's an important thing for us to be able to do because uh, they seem like they're different accounts. And what we'll see in John 20, which is in fact the longest one, we still don't have lots of detail from John 20. And so we're going to look through John 20 at how the other gospel accounts fill in what really happens. And here's why this is important. The problem with this lateral thinking puzzle, the problem with this one, is that if we don't get the solution right to this one, if the pieces of this story don't fit together correctly, then the entire foundation of your faith in Christ is in vain. It's important for us to get this one right. Because if you do not, the entire foundation for your faith in Jesus Christ is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Your entire faith in Christ rests on the truth, the veracity, the validity of the resurrection. In fact, to say that faith is in vain means that there's no solution to your problem of sin if he did not raise from the dead. If the resurrection didn't happen, you have no covering for your sin. Because Christ did not do what he claimed he would come to do. In fact, Paul goes on to say, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. For those of you taking notes, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great passage to compare with John 20 today. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Romans 4.25 says it uh, the opposite way. And, and it says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, your standing before God as under His grace depends on whether or not He actually raised from the dead. So this is, this is, this is something we've got to get right. And if you're anything like me, I want solid evidence. I want to know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself in how it tells of Christ's resurrection because my faith hangs in the balance. And atonement, his covering for my sin, hangs in the balance. So for the explanation, we're going to piece together a few Bible texts, uh, especially going through John 20 here. We're going to sort of do this like a journalist or a detective might to find out the answer. We're going to ask a few questions of this passage. It's there in your worship guide there. When, who, what, and why? When, who, what, and why? And we have to do it this way because establishing the evidence is clearly important 
But also in each of these Gospels, we get one slice of the story. We get just one kind of angle on the story, even though all four of them tell the whole story. And in fact, John 20 here is the longest of all the accounts, even though, as we'll see, we don't get all the details at one time. If you're uh, taking notes and you want to know where those are, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24 are the other three where you can compare the story. And as you're studying this week for life groups, that would be a, a good idea for you is to look through those other texts. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24. So let's go ahead and answer these questions as we go along. The first question is when? I'm sorry, let me just back up and say one thing. This is, this is in relation to where we're going today, where we're headed today. We're going to take John 20 and we're going to add Romans 8 to it. And when we take John 20, when we take the account of the resurrection and we add uh, Romans 8, 11 to it, what we see is that the resurrection was not just something for us to enjoy because it shows us that Jesus is, is, is faithful to us and that he covers our sins. It's a way of saying that in the resurrection, you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are equipped to live a resurrection kind of life. That we are given the same exact power that rose Jesus from the dead to empower your life going out from here. And that we can live in light of that truth instead of living defeated lives like we often easily do as we are bogged down by the frustrations and the sufferings and the hardships of life. And so that's what we're going to do today. John 20 plus Romans 8 equals living a resurrection power life. It equals risen Lord living. So when, verse 1, John 20, let's jump into the text. It says this in verse 1 of John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. It says it was early Sunday morning. And it uses a phrase, first Sunday, for, I'm sorry, first day of the week. That phrase, first day of the week, in the Hebrew is an idiom for Sunday. It's a way of just saying Sunday. They didn't call it that. They called it the first day of the week. And so all four Gospels make it a point to mention that. And they're so, so they're making sure that it's the first day of the week, Sunday, and they're also mentioning that it's early. It's important to note that all four introduce their account of the resurrection by stating very clearly that it was the first day and not the third day after Jesus' death. This is an important point. They're saying to us, it's the first day and not the third day after Jesus' death. That would have been in keeping, the third day after Jesus' death, would have been in keeping with Jesus' own predictions about his death. He says in Mark 8.31 that he began to teach them, that's the disciples, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and he must be killed. And then it says, after three days rise again. Jesus had made explicit for them, though they didn't yet understand it then, he had made explicit that after the third day he would rise. That was in keeping with many prophecies that good Jews would have known about. So instead of saying, like you would think they would, 
that Jesus was raised on the third day after his death, they say on the first day, while it was still dark. What they're saying is that this is a new day. They're saying a new era of history has dawned. So if you're a circler, uh, circle in your Bibles there, first day of the week. And right there, new day, new era has dawned. Incidentally, uh, this is why we worship on Sunday and not on Saturday. This is why we worship on Sunday and not on Saturday. Because a new day, a new way of life, a new available power for resurrection living is made known to us in the tomb. And so we are people of resurrection, and that's why we are first day of the week people. You can look up Acts 27 and 1 Corinthians 16 too later on. Acts 27 and uh, 1 Corinthians 16 too for more evidence. Uh, there are other reasons, but those passages sort of help establish why. So, so the gospel writers are saying here, we are people of resurrection simply by putting something about the first day of the week and this is already, in the very beginning of verse 1, uh, a hint at where we are headed in this passage, plus Romans 8. So now we know when, Sunday, early on, and, uh, and they're going because they didn't quite have time to finish all of the preparation for Jesus' body, and so they couldn't buy the spices and the oils on Saturday, so they're going early on Sunday, as soon as they could buy the spices to take care of Jesus' body more than they were able to before. So that's why it's uh, on Sunday here. So, who is the second question? Who are the characters in this scene? We're still in verse 1. It says here that, uh, that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been rolled away. Here in John, uh, he focuses the account on just Mary Magdalene. But from the other four Gospels, we know that there are at least four other women. In fact, we know from verse 3 that others were with her here because it says, we do not know where they have laid him. That is uh, Mary Magdalene talking to Peter and to John. Another important detail here to note is that Mary Magdalene is noted in all four Gospels as the first witness. A woman is the first witness. Which is interesting because in Jewish law, a woman's testimony would not be admissible in court. It required the testimony of two males. And so it's interesting, there are lots of ways in which the New Testament uh, revolutionizes attitudes culturally about women. And this is a great example of that. Mary Magdalene is in all four Gospels noted as the first witness. Which is a way of saying which is a way of saying, among other things, it's a way of saying, we're being careful to tell you this as it happened. In other words, they're coming out of a cultural context where to say a woman was there first would be like saying, so what? You can't use that in court. They are being careful to say, we're telling you this as it actually happened. So it's, a, it's an important point that gives us evidence for the truth of this testimony. Verse 2, we, we meet the two males here at the beginning, Simon Peter and, uh, and the other apostle, I'm sorry, the other disciple it says, the one whom Jesus loved. This is Peter and John, the one who wrote this Gospel of John. 
So Peter and John are the two that are also uh, important witnesses here. Uh, We also see later on in uh, verse 12, it talks about two angels in white. In verse 14, it introduces Jesus. And then in verse uh, 18 of this passage here, it tells us that the other nine uh, disciples, because Thomas was out of the picture, the other nine disciples were eventually a part of this scene after they come back. Because Mary Magdalene said, I have seen the Lord. So, let's answer the question of what. We'll spend some significant time here about what, and then uh, move on to why. Verse 1, Mary Magdalene and crew, they come early to embalm the body because it wasn't enough time after crucifixion to properly prepare for burial. So, so as they were on the way, and this is not in John, but this is in Mark 16.3, they say, uh-oh, who's going to roll the stone away? Who's going to roll away that huge stone? We learned that from Mark 16. It's a valid question because it's a, it's a four and a half diameter, something like this, four and a half foot diameter stone that was rolled right over the entrance of the tomb. And this would have been something that was only in fancy, wealthy tombs. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea is the one who presented this tomb as available for Jesus to be buried in. And it's a brand new tomb, which means that it probably looked like this. We're going to show you a picture here of the tomb that Jesus was probably buried in. You can see that small little door on the bottom right there. It was, it was not, not big enough to walk through. You had to scooch down in there. And, and that big stone was rolled over the front there. And you can see from the cutaway that on the back of that bench would have been where uh, the burial shroud would have been. And, it, and you can't really see it well there, but there are two cloths, one for his body and one for his head. And what would have been typical for a new tomb like this is that it would start out with a little bench on each of the three sides there. And because it was a new tomb, they could have easily looked in without going in. And this is an important point to know. They could have looked in without going in to know that his body was not there. If this had been a tomb much later on that was not a brand new tomb, there might have been many more places cut out And you might have actually had to go into the tomb. So this is another way in which the scripture is being careful to make sure we know that it's a new tomb of a wealthy man. So so when we come to the passage like this, and it says uh, later on here uh, that uh, John peeked in and waited for Simon Peter, just like Mary Magdalene peeked in, they would have known automatically that the body was not there. They didn't have to actually go inside the tomb. So uh, archaeologists have looked at thousands of tombs, and there are about a thousand in Jerusalem that have been found in and near Jerusalem. And most of the new tombs that are of wealthy people like this looked a lot like this. So it's another way that establishes for us that, that the story of resurrection given to us in the Gospels is one that takes careful uh, evidence into account. So, let's go ahead and move on on this what question. Verses 1 and 2 could have given you the impression, I forgot to mention this, the impression that they looked in and didn't know that uh, the body was not there. Read verses 1 to 2 there. The transition there gives you the impression that they could have just seen that the stone was rolled away and that was it. But from what we know here, they also knew that the body wasn't there. Read the transition from 1 to 2. It says they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. As if she simply saw that it was rolled away, but she also saw the body was not there. Read on in verse 2. That's why she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. When Mary Magdalene shows up to tell Peter and John, she makes clear that the body was already gone. So that explains, verse 3, why Peter and John are running. They would not have been running if they had just been told the stones rolled away. Well, they might have been running. But, but the body uh, also was gone. So verse 3 explains why they're running. Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple is John. And they were going toward the tomb, verse 4. Both of them running together. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb uh, first. I don't know why. John feels the need to tell us that he's in better shape than Peter, but he does. Uh, I sort of imagine John running to the tomb and saying, hurry up, slowpoke. You know. Um, but, but it is another important point to note that even though that sounds like a weird detail, it's a detail. And so if you go back and you ask Peter who got there first, he would have said, it's like John reported, Mary Magdalene, and then John, and I followed behind because I'm not in as good shape as John. It sounds like a funny detail, but, but it's another way that shows that the evidence is there for us to make clear that they're not making this up. So, uh, stooping to look in verse 5, he, that is John, who wrote this account, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not uh, go in. Small detail again, but he wanted to get this right. He probably wanted to let Peter go in first, because Peter, by this time, had already become the leader of the disciples. Uh, throughout church history, this has been the tradition, not just because of church history making it up, because it's in the Scriptures. There are many reasons why Peter is considered uh, sort of the leader of the disciples. Uh, Jesus doesn't say to any of the others, uh, your name is Rock, and I will build my church on you. He says it to Peter. He was one of the inner three who got a very intimate look at Jesus' life. Only three of them saw the transfiguration and experienced that. He led the church at Antioch for seven years, the very first place where in Acts 11 the, the, the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. He was sort of impetuous. He was always ready to fight, always ready to say something, and uh, I think that's why I like him. So he was considered, after Jesus, uh, pretty much the main leader of the disciples. So John lets him go in first to help establish the testimony, verse 6. So then Simon Peter came, following him, that is John, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And then he saw, verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. If his body had been stolen, they would not have been probably separate. In fact, people stealing bodies don't take off the head wrap or the burial shroud at all. They just take it off. And it, he's also careful to say that not only was the burial shroud there, but the head cloth was wrapped together separately from the other one. So somebody took some care there. And John takes care to uh, bolster the evidence by telling us that detail. So moving on, verse 8. Still answering this question. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Remember, he took the testimony of two men, 
he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. It took seeing an empty tomb for John to believe. He needed the evidence. He needed to see. And apparently he hadn't quite understood and believed Jesus' previous words about rising from the dead until that time. Something about the resurrection, this is important, something about the resurrection made explicit what he hadn't yet understood. We're the same way. We're the same way, aren't we? I mean, if you're anything like me, I want to see it before I believe it. My my heart's cry in ministry has been that I want to see God change hearts. And and as, as evidence of God's kingdom having arrived on earth through Jesus Christ, I want to see, and I know you want to see, life transformation as a witness to the resurrection. For many hurting and lost people in the world who don't know Jesus, if they don't see life transformation in those who follow Christ or claim to, then they don't have reason to believe it. <laughs> Which brings us to the why in Romans 8, 11. Turn with me for just a second there. Romans 8, 11. It's a great, great verse. It says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit which dwells in you. Let me read that again. Read along with me. Verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which we assume as believers in Christ is the case, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. In other words, your current bodies of flesh This side of heaven. Paul is not talking about future glory yet. That comes later in chapter 8. He's talking about the already and not the not yet. (laughs) At least, not yet. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Who is dwelling in you. He's using present tense to say, here and now, dwelling in you. This is why Romans 8 is important. This is, this is huge. It's why we're here today. Christ's resurrection, which demonstrated Christ's power over sin, is now in us. Making possible lives who demonstrate victory over the power of sin. Nobody is saying sinlessness. You and I will continue to struggle to the grave. But it does make possible lives who demonstrate, witness to, testify to, and show victory over the power of sin. 
In other words, Jesus rose from the dead so you and I can live with power like that. It's the only possible way that explains what the disciples went through from this point. How their lives were changed. The way in which the early church grew. The demonstration and witness of those followers who looked into the tomb is the evidence that that kind of power is available for us. Now, what this means is that you and I can live with total abandonment for the sake of Christ as we were meant to. It means that we are empowered to live a life of radical selflessness that gives and gives and gives because you can be confident that the same power that raised Christ from the dead will, by you, will be used by God to accomplish His purposes. Let me say that again. We can live lives of radical selflessness for the sake of the Gospel because that same power that raised Christ from the dead will be used by God to accomplish His purposes in the world. And there is a watching world that needs so very badly to see risen Lord living happen. So that we can, like Mary Magdalene at the end of this passage, say, I have seen the Lord. And live like it. And show it. Father in heaven, it is our hearts cry to live lives that show the truth of the resurrection. It is easy for us, it is tempting for us, Father, to live lives. that are stuck on defeat, to live lives that brood over our sin. It is easy, Lord, to, to look out at the world, our lives, and see so much brokenness that it is difficult for us, Lord, to see the availability of Your power for us. So, Father, we just, we just ask, we plead with you that the truth of Jesus Christ as a living Lord will empower us to live in a manner that testifies to that power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We would just like to invite you, if you're a baptized believer in Christ looking for a church home, we'd like to invite you forward. If you would like to, in the waters of baptism, publicly proclaim your faith in Christ, we want to invite you forward. And if you just need someone to pray with, to talk to about your next step of faith and what it looks like to live as the Lord is risen in your life, then we'd like to talk with you or pray with you as we stand and sing.